Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to our Tech News Podcast. I'm here talking with Ro- Rosalind Fuller, the founder of the Salonian Democracy Institute, who are also going to be running a conference later, later in the year in Balbriggins. How's it going, Rosalind? Really good. We have a lot of really interesting speakers coming, including Richard Barber, who is the chief digital strategist for the Labour Party in the UK, and also some people who are going to be talking about participatory budgeting and citizens' assemblies. So we've actually got a really good lineup. Now, before we start about the, the common itself, tell us a bit about your background in international uh, politics. Yes, well, I came to Ireland to write my PhD at Trinity College yep. on international law and democracy, and then after that I lectured for a little while. And then I wrote several books on the subject of democracy and went on to found the Solonian Democracy Institute, which is a think tank uh, devoted to participatory and deliberative democracy. And it's this conference you're running in Balbriggan, what's going to, what is it, is it, it's like politic, politics and technology? Yeah, it's a mix of politics and technology because often when people think of politics and technology, they think of, you know, old politicians who don't know how to work a computer and they kind of think of politics as being really behind technology. Uh, But the truth is when it comes to democracy, um, technology actually has a way to transform democracy, to make it much more inclusive, to allow people to participate between elections, for example, which is what the original meaning of the word democracy means. Democracy in ancient Greece involved constant participation in politics and people making decisions after talking to each other directly. So technology is now coming close to being able to kind of imitate that today in a way that hasn't been seen since ancient Greek times. Yeah. So I remember a few years ago, Lorraine Higgins wanted to to bring in a law about social media because she felt basically social media was, uh, was, was too liberal. And you, you want to control what you're saying there. And it was called, could you call Lorraine's Law or something else? And uh, I wrote an article about that for our Tech News on my blog about what you say was wrong. She was stating, for example, that if he wrote a tweet and he said, what do you want to tweet your person? That's seen as, as harassment. And because of that, you can be, you can be then saying, oh, you harassed me, I can go to court against you. And my view is, because Twitter, at that time, I was for the characters. You can't say so much in one tweet. She has to deal with multiple tweets. So, how is that? Is that going to be harassment? And it was basically Orwellian. And a lot of politicians don't want, don't like technology as such because it, it gives people like me and you an opportunity to openly discuss and debate what's going on around the world. Yeah, I think a lot of politicians have taken, have tried to give people the impression that there are no laws on the internet. But of course, uh, hate speech, you know, you still cannot commit hate speech on the internet. You cannot um, uh, ask or demand someone, you know, to commit a crime or to kill someone or things like that. Um, You can't defame or slander people according to the laws of the land that you're in. So there are still actually laws in force on on the internet as well. Um, It's not terribly hard to find someone behind a Twitter or a Facebook account. You can get warrants for these things. Um, But the kind of political discourse, I think, has sought to give people the impression that that is not the case, that it is a completely lawless realm, and therefore they want to tighten up control. And I do agree with you, Ronan, that that is partly because you can't really disguise anymore that people aren't satisfied with a lot of policies. You know, you might as a government say, we have policy X, but people can get on the internet and say, you know, we don't agree with policy X, and and you start to get the impression a lot of people don't agree with it. Previously, it was quite hard to just shove that under the rug, and now it's becoming increasingly impossible to do that. Yeah, I guess like 30 years ago, all you wanted, if you wanted to read the news, all you you see or read would be whatever the papers or or the media, TV radio would actually tell you, whereas now, with Twitter and other, other platform like that, you can actually go up online and share your thoughts, share your views, debate with people who think it like you do, share your articles on this, and you get a lot of journalists who are now coming through from social media aspects, background, they've written an article on Medium or something else, and they can share their view, like, for example, the water protests in Ireland, that, that a lot of people were, uh, were angry about that. And without social media, we wouldn't have got the full story of, on both sides. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think that without social media, we wouldn't have gotten the full story. Because traditionally, of course, a lot of people who have gone into media have been relatively well off. Um, it's also been a, a profession that there's been costs associated with it. So you, you could only print a certain limited amount of words. So now that you know you don't have those limitations anymore, you can print as much as you want. You can have as many voices as you want out there. You're starting to have people who are participating who wouldn't previously have been heard, whose experience would have kind of been whitewashed out of the picture, you know? And you can see that if you look further back into history, you can kind of see that development. Because if you go further back, you see, you know, in the in the 1800s, most books were written only by very wealthy people. Yeah. And we almost don't have a very good understanding of what, for example, working class yeah. people thought during that time. Because when they're portrayed, they're portrayed by wealthy people. Yeah. You go even further back, you know, to the time of the printing press, you know, people aren't able to communicate in writing with each other very much at all over yeah. long distances. So you kind of see this. This is part of the technology that we're seeing now in the internet. It's part of a historical development that's opening up space for more and more, you know, regular people to be talking directly with each other without mediation by some, you know, other force potentially editing uh, those views or facts yeah, as well, the face may be. Well, I think social media and websites are the modern-day printing press and that you're giving more people a chance to actually, because uh, years ago, before printing press was gone, books were making written by monks. Yes. And they would handwrite them and, and that was it. And they were basically, what they wrote was basically, uh, they were told what they kind of can write. And the printing press gave more freedom to publish your own books. And same with, with uh, this media and uh, also uh, websites. You then got a chance to publish it. Like, for example, Huffington Post, for example, is a great publication that has come out of somebody realizing, I want an alternative voice out there. I want to get the best people like Woodrow and Bernstein writing for me. God, I'll write and, and give them their views and things. You're getting that now more. Like Seema Hirsch, people like that have a voice now online because offline now their voice isn't heard too much because they don't fit in with the mainstream narrative. Led you know a lot of people to feel confusion sometimes because now instead of there being one one voice or one narrative or structure of events that have happened, there's a lot of different voices out there and a lot of different you know competing claims yeah. uh, about what has happened, why it's happening. But I think we just have to accept that that's that is actually natural that those people have always been there, that people have always talked in the pubs yeah. about things they didn't agree with, you know. And sometimes people have said things that are perhaps less than flattering about yeah. about politics politicians or other uh, well-known people, you know, in face-to-face conversation with each other. So that, like, I would say kind of like rich history or kind of very nuanced view, maybe differentiated views, have always have always been there. It's just that we're now hearing them. And, you know, in many ways that's actually been very positive. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, look at all the harassment on the internet or, yeah. you know, things like that. But harassment was happening before, yeah. you know, o- offline. And I think, in a way, the internet and social media have been great and that they've done a lot to expose those yeah. things. Yeah. It's always gonna, my view is always going to be there no matter what you do it'll still be there and my view is if they try and censor the internet or, or social media they're doing it because they don't want us to hear basically alternative voices anything that, that contradicts what they're saying. I think it's very very important I think it's extremely important for democracy that social media not be censored of course I mean that's just elementary that people need to be able to communicate with each other and I mean in a way social media has become the new, you know, talking to people down at the pub and things yeah. like that. Except, of course, now you can reach a wider audience. You know, instead of just being your three friends who maybe disagree with something, you might be able to talk to other people and realize other people think something different. I mean, what I remember when the referendum happened in Greece yeah. uh, a few years ago um, on the IMF. Yeah. Uh, I, they were interviewing people on TV in Greece, and they were saying, yeah, it was quite difficult here because, you know, the media was telling us yeah. we had to accept it, but we were, you know, reading people from other countries and realized that they were supporting us, people yeah. from other countries, and that really encouraged us. So you can see even people like across borders feeling encouraged by the fact that you feel like, well, I'm not alone. I'm not yeah. the only person who thinks this one thing. Yeah. There's a lot of other people like me. So yes, I mean, it's just elementary. You know, the same way we shouldn't have, shouldn't be censoring, you know, printing presses, right? As, yeah. as of course the church tried to do. 
when when the uh, printing press was invented and yeah. people started publishing their own versions of the Bible. Those yeah. were different versions of the Bible yeah. than had previously been there. Those were reinterpretations. Um, but of course, they sought to to suppress those. And in the same way, we see now, you know, a kind of effort to suppress what people are saying on the internet in order to retain a kind of gatekeeper yeah. function in society. Yeah. But with printing press, because it was easy, easy to be able to actually buy or build one, like a computer is now, they couldn't suppress that much. Right, exactly. That's just it. It is. It's cheap. It's easy. I think it's going to be very hard to suppress. But yeah. at the same time, I think you know we need to be wary. There is a huge uh, body of opinion, you know, saying that basically because of misinformation, um, because of you know how people have voted, for yeah. example, in Trump and Brexit, that we should clamp down on the information people have. And I mean, of course, it is important to fact-check things. Of course, it's important not to believe everything you read on the internet. Yeah. But you know, you have to allow people to, I suppose, mature, right? People to mature and to say to themselves, I'm going to, you know, get to the bottom of information, or I'm going to take things with a grain of salt. Yeah. It's like there's a joke going around of a, of a, of a guy in court in front of the judge, and and he goes, and he, the judge, uh, he was talking to a lawyer in court, and the, the uh, lawyer asked him, um, so you're saying it's true? Yes, it is. And because, um, uh, how can I find out? Just Google it. So in, in a sense, you've got a scenario where basically right now, people are assuming it was in Google Machine. It's all this. A lot of it could be fake, and we don't know. It's how do we know what is fake and what is real news? Yeah, that's true. That's quite that. That is the difficulty. But I would again say that's always been the difficulty. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we've always had instances of you know hoaxes. I mean, look at the Iraq War, which yeah. is a prime example, right? It was claimed that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Yeah. Um, they went into Iraq. It turned out there weren't weapons of mass destruction. You know, look at the Vietnam War. Uh, it was claimed they were going to win. You know, America was going to imminently win the Vietnam War. It came out that they knew they weren't going to win the Vietnam War. Um, so we we have had like fake news, I suppose. Quite continuously with us all of this time, I do think that people, you know, in general, I mean, everyone in general benefits from approaching anything you hear with a certain level of skepticism yeah. and seeing, you know, does it add up to the things I've observed in real life? Does it add up to other sources? You know, does it, you know, is did someone say something and it turned out to be true? Do I attribute more credibility yeah. to them than I would to someone else? So, I mean, it's not like we don't have ways of dealing with us, yeah. but it's kind of a process we have to go through. You can't be protected by some outside authority yeah. who's going to tell you what the truth is and what isn't all of your life. That would be like remaining a child yeah. your whole life and never growing up. Yeah, for me, it's a, if you get a certain politician or person endorsing a fake news story, it's then hard to differentiate what is real and what isn't real. For example... Well, the moment, for example, we're going through the 8th uh, eighth, uh, eighth, 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 right. eighth appeal. Okay. And um, both sides of the, both sides are, are uh, bringing out, sorry, now, are, are saying, claiming certain facts that I know basically aren't true. Okay. And I'd wish that both sides would come and let them play field and not play dirty. But at the moment, it's with social media being the way it is now, it's easy, easy to share this information online. It, it is. And, I mean, that's true. It is easier to share information online. It is maybe in with the lack of editorial control, let's just say, in the good old days, yeah. right? Um, you know, where, where editors would check yeah. if what they, you know, for the most part anyway, you know, in reputable newspapers, editors would check, you know, yeah. if you could confirm something before they would publish it. True. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a challenge. On the other hand, I suppose I would say we're not living in those good old days. No. Like, so, <laughs> unfortunately, that's kind of gone out the window. There's no way really to bring it back at this point, except for people to move forward. And maybe, you know, look, of course you can have independent people fact-check something. I mean, if they're truly independent or not is then the question, yeah. right? You always have this ultimate question, who guards the guards? Yeah. And it's kind of insoluble, eternal problem. You know, you never, they, the bottom line is you don't know who you can always trust, but of course, you can follow something, you know, you can follow a news source, or you can follow a story for some time and you can kind of determine, do I find this credible, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's maybe just the truth. Democracy, participatory democracy, and real democracy if you want, uh, does 
require a lot more work. Yeah. I mean, because it does require people to be constantly informing themselves. Yeah. You know, if we look at the ancient Athenians, they were continuously involved in decision making, so they became very knowledgeable about what was going on in their society because it was just something that they did on a near yeah. daily basis. So that that is a, exactly right. I mean, democracy is a lot of work, and that's why some people, myself included, advocate paying for participation in that. Yeah, I guess sense. right now because uh, technology is becoming uh, cheaper and everyone wants a smartphone or tablet or computer, the average person in the in, in Ireland or anywhere around the world can actually see what's going on and they can get a lot of different views. So not really going to be polarised in going with the official government view or the official view of the national broadcast of the country. They can see other, other views too as well make their own mind up. Yeah, well, that's really key to democracy is to have many different views. Yeah. Because when you have two views that kind of harden into camps, you actually end up with something the Greeks called spaces, which was civil strife yeah. that could ultimately lead to civil war, yeah. basically, when you just have two factions. But elections, especially in first-past-the-post systems, for example, in Britain and uh, the United States, actually exacerbate that because they do create two camps. You know? yeah. They usually lead to two big parties. And so you do have these two camps that actually tend to further polarize the population yeah. into those two groups. Um, whereas hopefully if people are making decisions on a more continuous basis, and we see this for example with the Citizens' Assembly, right? Yeah. You do have a hundred people who are deliberating, yeah. you know, and coming to many perhaps differentiated conclusions, right? You know, you could say uh, we should repeal the AIDS completely, we should repeal it and have some term limitations, you could repeal it and have other limitations, yeah. you know, you can debate where the term limits should be. Yeah. Those are all things that kind of come into a more more nuanced, full debate, instead of just a yes or no, kind yeah. of. And unfortunately with a referendum, that's the problem. There is a yes or no question. Yeah. It's not something where people are given four or five options or, you know, or something like that. So therefore, it kind of, de facto becomes polarizing. And the worst thing is that when they say, for example, during a referendum or, or a normal election, people are stating that uh, there's a moratorium of when you can like, publish stuff. Yeah. If someone's online on social media, Twitter, or anything else, that moratorium mightn't exist as such. Well, to some extent, this is a problem of legislation, which they haven't, you know, just haven't regulated yeah. them like they should have, right? I mean, newspapers yeah. and everything were regulated, and television shows were, were regulated for equal, more yeah. egalitarian content yeah. and, and everything. Um, and that just hasn't been kept up in the yeah. age of the internet. I mean, possibly tech companies have lobbied against that effectively, yeah. you know, um, because they all, that's obviously revenue for them, right? Yeah. So, but that's something, that's a big issue and that the laws we've been living up until now in regards to, uh, you know, election spending and election advertising and referendums have kind of gone out the window in the, fa in the era of the internet. So the choice is either to regulate them yeah. effectively or to seek to kind of broaden democracy and perhaps have decisions happening on such a continuous basis that people wouldn't really be able to get that much money behind any one decision yeah. anymore. Yeah, I yeah. guess because the moment I've seen when they might say, from 3 o'clock tomorrow, the, uh, we, we can't talk anymore about it because elections happen in a day's time. Whereas on social yeah. media, yeah. people can openly come on and, and spout I'm fake news. I'm going to vote for so-and-so, yeah, or I just voted. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or fake news. Or you can have somebody that can uh, go into election or go into referendum and have a picture of their ballot paper. I voted this. Yeah, yes, and then, yes. And I've seen people do yeah. that before and tweet that yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not supposed yeah. to, but it's still been done. Yes, yes, yes. So again, it's a you know there's a question of the secret secrecy of the ballot. Yeah. It's obviously been you know one of the mainstays of representative democracy for you know years, hundreds of years, um, and that's to protect you, of course, to protect yeah. you from being bribed or blackmailed or you know otherwise punished for how yeah. you voted. Um, and. I guess in an era, you know, there, it's kind of funny in a way because you kind of see people's behavior almost change yeah. due to technology as well, right? Younger people, a lot of younger people don't have the same views of privacy as older people yeah. did. You know, they might say, okay, I'm just going to share how I voted yeah. because they they don't feel that they need to keep that secret. Um, so the question is, do we move towards a society that is just maybe a little bit less privacy yeah. focused? Or do you, again, you know, make some law and enforce that and say you are no longer allowed to tweet yeah, how, you, yeah. how you voted and that's going to be an offense and we're going to track you down and find you if you do that. Yeah, I can see the, uh, an example where somebody actually uh, goes online and uh, somebody that people respect and know, and they went online and said, uh, I vote this way. Yeah, it's an endorsement. It's an endorsement and then yeah. they're following.
lot of people that, that admire them might follow suit. Yeah. Doing that because if they're voting it, must be good. No, yeah. no, I haven't gone through the full facts of what, of what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a question of, you know, how much resources do you want to put behind? Of yeah. course, you know, like tracking people like that down. It's not that, you know, anything can be done. Yeah. It's always possible to do that. You know, it's, it's always possible to pursue anything you want to. But the question is how much resources do you want to devote to doing that? Yeah. And do most people, I think that's actually, actually a good conversation and something that should, in fact, maybe itself be democratically decided. Do people want to make that illegal? Do people think that should be should be illegal? Do people think that should be regulated? Yeah. Or do people have a more open conception of privacy than they would have in previous generations and don't view that as a threat or don't view it as being necessarily against the rules now? Like, for example, if you look back at uh, on privacy, I, I can see, for example, that my parents would, would be uh, totally against basically Facebook as such. Yeah. And I can see why. And uh, then you get somebody who's been 16 or 15 using it as a personal diary and yes. in your thoughts. So suddenly you're yeah. given, uh, it could be Facebook or, or Medium or any other six-minute platform, you're, you're giving them your inner thoughts and your data. Yeah. yeah. And they're selling what, what you what you actually tell them all. And what happens then is they can build a profile of you. That could be sold to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's just the thing. I mean, in a way, social media has been really good for democracy because everyone can be talking to each other. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they are privately owned corporations. Yeah. So at the center of all of our talking to each other and sharing things with each other and discussing politics, we have to acknowledge that they're owned by a couple of billionaires yeah. who might sell your information on yeah. to, to someone else or be using it, you know, uh, to generate ads and things like that. So their motives are, of course, not pure. Uh, um, and not just that, they can of course change the parameters of their of their system. They can change the rules. They could, you know, kick you off. Yeah. You know. So, um, in the future, if we were to have something, you know, a participatory, a, you know, more direct democracy, you would need to have that be under the control of the people as yeah. well. Those mechanisms, you know, to be kind of owned by a collective or a state, if you want. Although in that like case, the state isn't separate from the like people. Like a commune, in a way. In a way, I guess, yeah. I guess, yeah. In a sense, you know, democracy, the original democracy was a little bit more, a little bit more like a commune in the sense that people had a very strong sense of, you know, their belonging to this country together and needing to work together. Except nowadays, people assume communism is something that's very lefty and, uh, and communist-based. When, when in a sense, it's not because everyone has an equal right and, and, and say and sharing things. Yeah, I kind of find it weird in a, as well that there's a sense of like, you know, some, such as such as left wing and something else is, is left wing when really it's, you know, might be something that is in the interest of the majority of people. Like, yeah. you know, like healthcare, for example. I mean, most people need healthcare at some point in their lives and very few people can afford that completely, you know, to pay for that completely on their own. Yeah. But it's kind of been called a left wing idea, you yeah. know. Um, and, the, and the same with democracy. You know, we actually live in a world where the going ideology is yes, everyone's equal and everyone has an equal right to participate in politics. But when you do something that's going to actually implement that, kind of, you know, enforce that equal right, then suddenly, you know, it's leftist and communist and yeah. so on and so forth. I mean, what does communist, I guess, communist, I mean, I guess, of course, people think communist and they think, you know, Russia yeah. and, and uh, Stalin yeah. <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I suppose in that sense, um, all of those terms have kind of been off the agenda. But there is, on the other hand, a certain point where you can go perhaps too far in an individualistic society where you're no longer part of that society yeah. you know, where people are so rich some of the members of that society are so rich that they say screw it I'm just going to pay my tax somewhere else yeah. I'm not going to pay my tax at all or I'm going to run a business in Ireland but I'm going to run the money through the Cayman Islands yeah. you know you're not part of the society in the sense that you're not contributing yeah. anymore and your money is not flowing back so you can push that too far as well yeah I, I agree because yeah. I, I think at the moment uh, when someone says that they're too left wing I say well hold on nothing wrong with that at all being left wing everyone's got to have a point of view and sometimes I feel if it's too right-wing, what is done for the country? I mean, my view is right-wing, left-wing, you've got to have both poor opposites. If, you, if, you, if they're all thought the exact same, it will, will be born society. 
Yes, well, you can't. Yeah, exactly. If we were all the same, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be very interesting, and it wouldn't be very good for debate. No. Either, you know, because even you know, in a democracy, I mean, yes, you don't need to be necessarily antagonistic beyond all reason, but there is a point in playing the devil's advocate yeah. and having a discussion about an idea, however good it sounds on the surface, yeah. so we can make sure we don't make any mistakes. Yeah, like if we all came in dressed as robots and were told how to dress, how to talk, how to speak, what to wear, what to eat, and everything else, it would be a boring life. It would be really, really, really boring. Yeah. <laughs> and not just that, probably very totalitarian as yeah. well, because you'd have to enforce that somehow, yeah. you know? So yeah, there, there, just, it, there is a wide diversity of people out there, yeah. and we should just kind of accept that, and accept that there's not necessarily a right, you know, a knowable right way to do everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you talk to people hundreds of years ago, they would have not believed some things we do take for granted today, yeah. you know? Like germs, or, you know, antibiotics, and things like that, right? I mean, they didn't know everything back then, and we don't know everything today yeah. either. There'll be things where 100 or 200 years ago, everyone will look back and they will say, "Oh, weren't they? You know, weren't they? Were they complete idiots back then? I can't believe they didn't know about this and that." And it's so easy to make a warp drive, you know. Yeah, because 200 years ago, <laughs> if you said to people, "There's going to be two prime ministers of Britain are going to be are going to be female," they that was not a. Uh, yeah. They're, good, they're good. hold on. Yeah. But females right now can't vote. Right. So if yeah. they can't vote, how yes. can they get that? And, uh, and my view is, as technology has progressed, people have got more of a chance to uh, use, their, uh, use their voice because technology gives them the opportunity of saying things they couldn't normally have said in the past. Like when we where it came along, you had a chance to go and, and express your opinions. Right before that, there was, there was wasn't radio, there was now, and then there was TV, and, right. and from TV, social media, and then it begat something else. Yeah. Whatever platform was out there, everyone got an equal opportunity to promote themselves. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're seeing. It's kind of this opening up gradually, right? Yeah. You know, first only uh, men who owned a certain level of property were yeah. allowed to vote. And then, you know, it was opened up to men who didn't necessarily yeah. own any property, and then women and ethnic minorities, and so on and so forth, right? And now we kind of see in the same thing it happens when it comes to speaking. Yeah. You know, it kind of, this is opening up to more and more and more people, not just people who go to prestigious universities um, and get degrees or become experts yeah. in their field are allowed to talk at all. I mean, maybe we might listen to what they say because they are an expert, but other people can talk too. They can question what they're saying. So the thing is, technology has given them a chance to learn more. Because when you, if you were talking about 60 years ago and you and you, you were went to edu- for education, for example, you were taught certain things in school, and that was then after a while you were told when you're 15, 16, you go and get a trade or you do this and that. And somebody from a poor background didn't get a chance to actually further educate our lives or actually get a chance to go to college, university. Now you have technology, you can have a child who's 12 years of age that can go online, look at a Wikipedia, look at everything, and find out what's going on and educate themselves and get a chance to actually learn more. And, and uh, they can go and look something on YouTube and they want to, to become a, do a certain career and they couldn't years ago. YouTube now has got videos where you can go and teach you things how to do things. So from that, they, yeah, I want to learn how to do this. And from that, they can progress and, and not fall the same old, old uh, family routine where my father was a coal miner, so will you be. You've now got a chance to be a coal miner's son and daughter, but not going to be a coal miner anymore. You've seen um, so many show you how to design a game online and YouTube video how to design games, how to do Minecraft. You want to go and do that. The chances that you can do it, you can take a chance of doing it because technology is giving you opportunities you didn't get before. Well, I think technology can be an aid in that way. I'm not sure if, if it would be enough by itself no, to not. make to make that happen, you know? I mean, because people always, you know, in, in some countries, people have always been able to go back to school and, you know, retrain themselves, yeah. like in Germany or in Scandinavia or maybe even in Canada. Yeah. It's been a little bit more open and a little bit easier to move yourself yeah. from maybe a, like a kind of more menial job to a more qualified yeah. job if you continue to educate yourself. Um, so I don't think, you know, it's not enough on its own. But yes, by making all of those things cheap, yeah. you've prevented people from keeping uh, keeping a kind of gate on it, a kind of lock and key yeah. on those issues. I mean, one issue, one big issue is, for example, academic writing. Yeah. Um, a lot of academic writing is behind a paywall. So yeah. if you want to access it, you have to either be at a university, or um, sometimes you can, if you if you have been graduating from a university, you can get like a member's card yeah. and you can go in and you can access that information. But if you don't have that, 
all of that you know technical information, which is actually very important because it's exactly what allows you to really fact check yeah. things you know that you read in newspapers, is actually not accessible. And there was actually a, a case in the United States, Aaron Sparks, who um, he kind of he was posting basically some of the stuff. He was making it more freely available, yeah. um, and he was accessing um, you know academic articles that he didn't. I think he wasn't allowed to. But um, you know they took him to court and he killed himself. Yeah. You know he was a very young guy. But you know for example that would be something that hasn't been opened up yet. The actual you know academic papers, yeah. underlying data, which is very very important for people to have. Oh, that was that was in time. But I'm thinking like yeah. like years ago when you got a Encyclopedia Britannica and you got that and that would be a, yeah. and uh, once you bought a set of those books, they they. Because the cost of them, they, they would, you wouldn't update them uh, by the regular, update it regularly. Sure. Whereas, when you go online for some Wikipedia or something else, they're always updated. Yeah. So every time you go online to read something like that, you're getting the information up, relying on a book that's 20, that's 10 years old. Yeah, it, yeah. well, exactly. When I was in school, we had I remember we had textbooks that my father yeah. used. You know, you'd find the names of my father and my uncles in the, in the textbooks that, yeah. we were, that we were using in school. Um, yes, of course, right, exactly. So the a, the ability to keep you know to keep something hidden you know to say to yourself yeah. I get to say who is allowed to study and yeah. who isn't allowed to study has definitely dramatically diminished yeah. you know so I mean but I, again I don't think that that alone would be enough to really um, transform people's lives or to get people who are like you know systematically disadvantaged to allow them yeah. you know to, to rise into a different position in fact I almost wonder and that brings us to, to another thing that we'll be talking about this conference you know what to what extent is that even relevant in the future? Yeah. Because the economy has also changed yeah. a lot in the sense that people aren't necessarily getting full time employment for life no. anymore. You know, zero contracts. Right, exactly. Zero contracts, or you know, a little contract here, a little contract there, and you can be a quite successful person but have no job security. Yeah. Now, and you know, what about a pension and you know things like things uh, like no, that? No, 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 no life because you you suck life as existing doesn't. Working more because he can't tell your friends or whatever when you're going to be free. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. For example, right. So, I mean, and you know, perhaps we need to think about things like basic social income, yeah. which is one of the things we're also going to be discussing yeah. at this conference. You know, like, I mean, in a sense, because in a sense, the future could be great. I mean, people had to do. You know, people did have to work full time at jobs they hated yeah. <laughs> in the past, uh, doing things that weren't really meaningful at all, um, going down uh, mine shafts, uh, you know, yeah. and so on and so forth, or even working desk jobs that they. Hated, um, and so there is a certain freedom in being able to say, you know, you can hop around jobs, or you can do something more fulfilling, or you can do something part time. There's a flexibility there, but we haven't updated. Similarly to democracy, we haven't updated our economic institutions to deal with that. Yeah, they just all, assume you're yeah. going to work full time until you're 65. And, and, and also, basically, they haven't realized that now you can work from home. Now technology has, has come so cheap that you can spend half your working week working from home. Yeah. Because if you live in a, if you, if you're living a two hours or driveway from your office every day, and your boss says, "Well, for three days a week, work from home, and come in twice a week in the office," yeah, that is gonna that 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 means you get a lot more work in a way done because you're not going to bed tired, getting morning tired. You, you get to get a good night's sleep and you get to get the work done. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's an advantage. Of course, it's also good for the environment if you yeah. think about all of the commuting people yeah. do back and forth. It's great. Gives you maybe more flexibility. Gives you the ability to uh, have people to work with people in different countries. Yeah. I mean, we never could have done this before. When I was when I started studying, which was not that long ago, I guess it was maybe less than twenty years ago when I started my first degree. You used to go and get like these journals in the library. Yeah. You know, these printed paper journals, and we could only afford like. Four Four or five different journals, yeah. right? And now, of course, you can access. You can, if you have the right membership, obviously, uh, access all of that online. Yeah. So you could be reading something someone wrote in South Korea, yeah. which you know you never would have thought you were doing. So it's, it's usually it's usually beneficial, but you have to update the society to deal with that because yeah. you can't say now that people are going to come out of university, get a full time job, stay in that job through the mortgage and white picket fence, and retire at sixty five with a pension. Exactly, right? So you have to think how can we how can we change the economy to fit that situation yeah. you know change the laws change the structure you know because at the moment in this country the, the way it's going if, if you're multinational and you want to come to Ireland and create jobs you're given more help than a startup and a startup is the one that's that my view 
there are people who, who live here, went to, went to college here and everything else here. But normally when you go to college here, you're told to go to college, get a degree, then go work for, for a big company. Yeah. You're not really being taught basically, I can work for myself. Yeah, and there's not really, I think too, there's like kind of maybe an overemphasis on trying to sell out successful startups yeah. to bigger multinational companies when we should probably be trying to keep them and yeah. you know, grow the promising ones here and make them into Irish companies, yeah. employing people, paying taxes here yeah. in this country, you know. And we're not getting there. We're not also, the uh, the uh, when you get these companies come to move to Ireland, they're getting a lot of benefit, benefits, like might get reduced tax rate and different yeah. that. I might say, well, we'll help you find the uh, premises and we'll give it to you at a reduced cost of rent whatever. If you're a startup in Ireland, you don't get that. Yeah. You're at a disadvantage right now. If you're trying to hire the best staff to work for you, how can you compete against Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple or Twitter when these guys can come in and offer them some million stars? What can you offer them? Right, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's just it. A lot of small businesses, you know, the, the, whenever you make a regulation, it is in favor of someone or another. Yeah. So the regulations have changed in a way that they are in favor of big multinational businesses. Even if you look at book sales. Yeah. I mean, how can a bookseller, you know, a bookshop, yeah. compete with Amazon when they're not paying tax? Yeah. I mean, tax is a huge load yeah. for yeah. any small business. So, you're right, there, there, there has been a changing of the regulations to privilege very, very yeah. large multinational companies, and it is uh, killing, you know, smaller companies who are already existing, but killing smaller companies that, that exist, and are at least maybe accelerating their demise, and the same with startups as well. It's very hard to get yourself out there, because I guess you could end up with a situation where, you know, you become successful, someone wants to buy you. Yeah. I mean, either they do buy you, maybe they take you over hostily, but even yeah. if they don't, if you say, no, I'm not going to sell out, the next thing they're going to try to do is crush you. Yeah. So, obviously, the incentives aren't there to keep going on your on your own. Yeah, because I've seen startups in Ireland that haven't uh, done well, and in some cases, they didn't do well because the funding wasn't there, or they made, they made, a, they made the same mistakes, and when they offered funding, they didn't take it. Or they, uh, business model, they didn't uh, try and change and adapt with the, with the situation. Or they realized basically they couldn't get funding and that was it. The decision to attract multinational businesses maybe wasn't a bad one, you know, 30 years ago. Back when, you know, you're trying to build something up and especially yeah. something, you know, in a way, Ireland doesn't really have heavy industry, so you're yeah. kind of trying to leapfrog over that and, and get into tech. Yeah. But it's kind of gone on to the point where it's becoming self-destructive, and, you know, we're not taking advantage no. of the knowledge we have here and the abilities we have here now yeah. to kind of build our own yeah, I'm sure uh, you do. to some extent. I mean, though, you know, we're a small country. We're yeah. never going to be able to totally, you know, live, live as if America doesn't exist yeah. or something like that. But you know, we can we can tilt things by doing what we can do here and taking advantage of what we we've got well, here and yeah. our talents here. I think that startups and business can live side by side with each other, and there's certain things that startups can do which can offer to multinationals and vice versa. So I think why can't they coexist happily without any issues? But we're not given the opportunity of doing that such at times. Well, I guess a lot of politicians just kind of want to take want to take things easy in a way. Maybe don't want to be innovative, yeah. you know, or maybe even take take risks in a sense. You know, there's maybe a, a sense of kind of just keeping things on an even keel and and keep uh, the lights on, as it were, and things turning over a little bit, yeah. but not thinking maybe to the future and what are things going to be like in ten years or twenty years, you know, or thirty years. Yeah. So that's why you know in our, the conference that we're doing, it's the the theme this year is like democracy in twenty. Yeah. So what will things be like 12 years from now? You know, which in, in, in at the pace of technology is a fairly long time now. <laughs> yeah. But you think about it, will we still see Twitter or Facebook or, or LinkedIn available or will there be or will there be something else? What's going to be out there? And, yeah. and also, as technology becomes more involved in our daily lives, mm-hmm. it's going to be a situation like a... Like, if you think about 20, 30 years ago, looking back to the future, and you see that movie, yeah. and then you, you, you look back in the, when they did a version, when they did the second one, when they go ahead in time, 2017, whatever it was, 2016, and you think of the technology they have there, we haven't got that now. But, <laughs> Where's my flying car? <laughs> yeah, but they've actually developed, and Nike developed those uh, lace-up boots, the boots you had, they lace up themselves. Yeah. They actually sold, made them and sold them, you could buy those, and limited run. So they yeah. were available, right. but, but you never got the F. Oh, you never got the flying skateboard, hoverboards. Right. Yes. You get something coming out soon, a bit like that, but not the exact same. And you're wondering, what will 
life like be in 12 years' time? How will, we, will it be different? Will we all be electric cars? Will all be like run by Tesla cars and everything else, electric cars running the, running the country? And uh, when you get a taxi, it's going to be basically run by a ro- robot like Jimmy Cars in uh, Total Recall, where you, where you have a robot driver driving you. Or is it going to be a real driver in the car? We don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think what's certain is that a lot of jobs today, especially routine jobs, will become obsolete. Yeah. So you're looking at more and more manual work, more and more work that we need to do to sustain ourselves in a way, yeah. kind of becoming obsolete. And again, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Like it's it's bad in the sense that you think, okay, like many people might be out of work. Truck drivers, for yeah. example, who account for a, a large percentage of workers. So um, that's scary. On the other hand, the good news is we can keep a certain standard of living without working so hard, yeah. right? So just like you know, no one goes and plows a field with a hoe anymore. Right? No one panics. No one says we really should be plowing field. You know, we really should be out there hoeing. Yeah. Um, uh, we we also might say twenty years ago, or our children would say, like, why would you drive a car by yourself? Yeah. I mean, right? You could be working during that time or doing something fun. Yeah. So the question isn't what technology will bring. The question is, are we looking ahead and saying to ourselves, how can we adapt now yeah. for, for what's coming? You well, know. Yeah, I can remember last year Sony invented an AI an AI right. an AI journalist. Yeah. That can write right. articles, yeah. and then last about a month ago, I saw a robot in America that flips, makes hamburgers, cooks hamburgers. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. two jobs that you thought couldn't be filled by yeah. something else have been filled. Yeah. So if they can fill those jobs, what jobs can't they fill? Well, that, that's just it, you know. And I mean, especially with AI, I mean, no one knows. I, I believe no one is publicly saying they yeah. know exactly where that's headed. Um, but yes, I mean, a lot of things, you know, we won't, we won't need to work as hard as I yeah. guess that. And, and if we don't work, what are we doing, right? I mean, yeah. of course, there'll always be, you know, new industries. I mean, we have to think to ourselves as a as a country, though, in our, you know, as a country, as a civilization, where do we want to be putting our resources? Yeah. Do we want to be putting our resources into building super yachts <laughs> for yeah. the really, really rich people? Or do we want to maybe be putting that into, you know, health research, yeah. into space research, yeah. you know? Um, those kind of things that are really useful. And yeah. I mean, you know, in the past, countries did steer their economies to some extent, right? Obviously, the United States had a space program yeah. that they poured a lot of resources into. It's how we, yeah. we've got where we are today. Um, in the, you know, countries like Canada or Britain poured a lot of money into building up their health services. Yeah. You know, or Cuba, you know, th- those are all places that have, yeah. you know, contributing to that. So, we, that's the point where we're at. It's like, yes, we know that things are changing rapidly, but I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the political and even the journalistic landscape is sitting there just kind of like sitting ducks, you know, shrieking that things are changing, but yeah. not thinking to themselves, okay, let's get ahead of this and let's make this change good because it, it could be, it could be good. Yeah, because you get, I've seen the past 10 years, some uh, media organizations never really transformed to the online platform space. Right. And when they did that, basically, that was them gone. Yeah. Because they, they couldn't, they didn't know, they weren't prepared, they were prepared for the old medium whereas you, you go and buy a newspaper. Nowadays, you can buy an online version of a paper and read it everyone with breakfast. You take it to your computer or your tablet or your phone and you're sitting there reading the latest news, what's going on, you can do that. They weren't expecting that. And also, with these new online versions, when someone had a story of something, a, a story of maybe there was a latest what's happening in Syria. Yeah. When you, before you saw a photograph, you're now seeing a live video of what's, a video of what's happening there. Yes. You get more impact on the story, whereas before you saw a photograph, that was it. Yeah. And since our story, photograph was in black and white, yeah. now you're getting three, a full color uh, video footage of what's going on in this country. Or, for example, if you want to look at the latest sports results, used to be we have photographs of what happens. Now you can go online and you, when you get a story, you can see clips of the goals that were scored or, or celebrations after the match, whereas before you didn't get that. So you can feel as if you're there, you're part of it. It's giving you what's more immersive. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the question of what will happen in the future, I mean, to some extent, what will happen is what, what we make happen, you know, or what we don't make happen. So, I mean, when it comes to, to newspapers, to media, of course, yes, a lot of the major newspapers kind of felt so confident in their position that when the internet came along, they complained about it and kind yeah. of acted like everyone's doing things unfairly now online, um, and they kind of were caught on the back 
foot because yeah. of that. Um, so, you know, there's various things you could look at. You could look at micropayments, for example. There are some companies basically pioneering micropayments where, yeah. you know, if you like this content, make a small payment, yeah. very small payment for that content, um, which I think is something that could be possibly interesting because when it comes to media, I mean, the question is, if you... It does require some work, obviously. I mean, yeah. it requires people to either go to the place that's under investigation, perhaps, to report to you about it in your own language. It might require, you know, sitting for days at your computer, yeah. sifting through things, trying to put everything together in a story that yeah. people can read. Um, so, I mean, it is work. But I suppose people are now free to not necessarily pay for it, to perhaps feel like they've gotten some information anywhere, somewhere else. Like, I mean, I have, I haven't... The only time I buy newspapers is when I'm moving. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you. Like, I haven't otherwise bought a paper newspaper, I think, in like 10 or 12 years at least. So, how do you make sure that people are getting paid or that people can get paid enough to continue demand when yeah. they're doing micropayments? Possibly, possibly an answer to that if they catch on. Yeah. You know, you don't know until you try. I think that's kind of the state we're in. You can't really say anything for sure. You have to say, okay, let's try something. Let's try this and see if it works. Let's try that. You know, let's try citizens' assemblies yeah. for, you know, the... Uh, Amendment, you know. I mean, that's something where I think a lot of people. My my sense was that pe most people did want to repeal the eighth myself. Yeah. Um, possibly some of the politicians in major parties. It's possible they were only canvassing their own supporters, so maybe they would have gotten a different impression. Um, but you know, it's something that was reflected in the citizens' yeah. assembly. You know, people are ready for some change yeah. anyway. So it's one way of kind of, you know, it's an innovation to try to kind of bring that up. And I think that that's kind of where we're at. It's kind of like let's try things and see what works. If micropayments don't work, maybe something else will. Well, I think with blockchain, that's going to make things a lot easier because it's more secure yeah. with blockchain you're more or less guaranteeing that any data transferred between two parties is virtually possible to hack now you can't say it can't be done because nothing is secure but it's more secure than we have at the moment yeah and that's why that's one good thing that's coming out because years ago when you need the blockchain everyone thought bitcoin but it's not yeah. it's, it's bringing you secure ledger it's bringing you things that, yeah. you, that normally weren't smart like if I send you a document now via blockchain it's very, very hard, uh, unless you're suddenly with CIA or FBI. Yeah. It's hard to to uh, hack into it. Well, that's just it. You know, when I, I was kind of when I was advocating for digital democracy, pe that was always people's number one fear yeah. is that it can be hacked, right? And people think of you know, uh, you know, voting machines yeah. and things like that. Um, but yeah, blockchain really changes everything. Yeah. You know, it's a hugely significant technology. Yeah. You know, it and, and it goes far beyond you know Bitcoin, of course, but it actually enables people to form a community to vote and to be able to accurately access yeah. that in, in a, a way that is at least as as accurate as what we're doing now because of course you can stuff ballot boxes now and you can cheat a little bit now or yeah. you, can, you can miscount yeah. I mean it's easy it's easy to do right yeah. so um, so yeah it's hugely significant I think for the future of democracy because it's actually possible to say we could involve people in votes continuously yeah. and we could actually keep track of that accurately without really having to worry you know that someone would traditionally kind of hack in and screw up the you know change everyone's votes uh, and we'd never know about it yeah because yeah. at least with blockchain I've seen it years now in so many different areas I didn't think it could be used yeah you see like Ethereum for example you know yeah. Ethereum for example smart contracts yeah you know so yes I mean those kind of you know and again it's about not needing a kind of mediating enforcement mechanism yeah. someone who enforces the rules you can say okay we're basically enforcing these rules together yeah because we're all part of the ledger and we're all keeping track yeah and I guess because when, when you're using uh, blockchain it has certain rules that you have to abide by and, and they're on both sides so you or I can't go and change the rules yeah. but also it means that when we're using it it means that anything I send you either is a, a document or payment you know there's very good chance of that being basically hijacked uh, when it's been transferred unless of course you've got technology that uh, uh, the Secret Service might have like FBI, CAA or MathSat or MF5, MF6 it's not going to happen so a normal joke so criminal can't suddenly go in there and take data from that right. yeah 
Exactly, exactly. And the only thing with blockchain is, and of course, technically speaking, you can kind of see what your record yeah. is, even if people don't know who you yeah. are, right? So that, again, raises issues of privacy. But, I mean, that's how we do things, for example, at a university. Sometimes it doesn't happen anymore, but what you used to do is you used to print everyone's mark next to their student number, yeah. you know? And then people would go. And so, you know, it was public, but in the sense it wasn't public, and then other people didn't know what mark you got. Yeah, it wasn't public because they didn't know uh, which number you were. But right. you, before that, you see, be your name, and then it changed. I remember you said you said be your name besides besides the mark, and then it, then somehow that got changed, so we gave you a number. I, I went to university in Germany, and they used to call us out and yeah. make us go get our paper in front of the whole class. Yeah. So it was like a public shaming exercise. <laughs> I'm not a number. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a number. I'm a name. And, but it, I kind of that to me, in a sense, I can see why now that when you got a number now, you feel a bit more reassured. Yeah. Unless someone knows who your number is. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. And of course, you could always claim that's my number there, and it's not your number. And you, you could. Yeah. But <laughs> claim, oh yeah, I got this high score. And maybe you passed, but you can claim, well, I got that. I got this high score here. Yeah. And no one would know otherwise. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, uh, the important thing, I guess, for blockchain is you can be able to go and see. You know, does this add up to what to what I yeah, see? Well, see, for me, when yeah. it, when it shows, basically, blockchain can show who you are. It's, I, I don't think it's going to print on your privacy because all it is is guaranteeing that you are who you say you are. Yeah, you have to have, you know, you have to have that kind of some ability to see who, because otherwise you can't guarantee accuracy. Yeah. So it has to be some way you can follow things. But I agree, I think it's a great compromise myself. I yeah. feel like that to me is a perfect, really, yeah. compromise for what we can do and how we can take, you know, democracy forward because now there really isn't anything standing in the way. Because right now I've seen a few, uh, a few uh, different... Uh, 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 voting voting uh, uh, products online now that are based on blockchain. Yeah, exactly. Like Polis, I think, which is a Russian. Yeah, one, there's one example. that there's yeah. one that I actually interviewed during the year. Uh, they work with Kaspersky to do this. Yeah, I think that might be Polis. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, Polis. Yeah. And then there's one one of my colleagues, Simon Cocking, wrote about another one. That's gonna. That's uh, it's in the West. That's gonna do. Gonna change voting again and make it yeah. more transparent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know it's terrific. And I mean, I'm actually, there's going to be a, um, a software at our conference. A fellow. They're from Canada. Yeah. But they're actually also moving over to blockchain as well. So I mean, really, I mean, obviously, you know, everyone's had the everyone's had the same realization that this is the way to make your software, you know, pretty much uncrackable and much much more secure, definitely. Than yeah, because years ago, when people thought of technology, they weren't sure. Uh, how to adapt or change but now we're blockchain and I realised hold on if we get somebody in to, who's expert to do it for us we know how it's done old school I want someone to do it new school but if we mix both old and new together yeah yeah well that, that's quite a bit in a way I mean in a sense that's what we're doing I mean our our institute is called Solonian Democracy Institute because Solon was a statesman yeah. who lived near the beginning of democracy in Athens yeah. and he instituted reforms that are seen as kind of fundamental to how democracy developed but so we're kind of drawing inspiration from how they used to make decision making directly on mass, yeah. um, with you know very little ability to corrupt that, and at the same time using new technology to make that accessible for you know much larger places like Ireland. I yeah. mean, Ireland's a small country, but there's still well over four million people here. In Athens, there were only about thirty thousand yeah. voting citizens. So, but so. this conference is when is it taking place? Um, on July 18th to 20th. And where is it taking place? At the Bracken Court Hotel in Bulbergen. And uh, what's the cost? to attend the... Um, it's 175 euros for all three days. Yep. Or 150 euros early bird. And we also have tickets just for each individual day. And well. does that include like lunch as well? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it includes lunch, everything. So everything's... Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much that, Rosalind. And uh, thanks for that enlightening talk about democracy and politics and also technology and how things like blockchain can uh, make things a bit more transparent and safer for the future. Thanks very much as well. And good luck with the conference. Great. Yeah. Thanks.